Okay, so welcome to Plodcast, episode 58. It's good to have you with us. So, uh, a few weeks ago, well, I've mentioned this twice on my blog, and it's gotten a reaction both times, and I've, so I want to um, expand or explain a little bit of what I'm about with this illustration that I've used that got the reaction. Um, so if you consider uh, chastity, which is a Christian virtue uh, for all believers, male and female alike, it doesn't follow from that that uh, chastity is the same virtue for both sexes or uh, that unchastity or lack of chastity um, in each sex will have the same effect. Uh, and this can range from the, um, the manifest observation that the unchaste woman might wind up with a baby and the unchaste man doesn't. So uh, men and women are completely different and because they are completely different, they sin differently, and the impact of their sin uh, lands on themselves and other people differently. You know, we live in an egalitarian age, and this egalitarian age wants to pretend that every human being is simply a bipedal carbon unit, and everybody is interchangeable. You can just say, um, if one person does X, then if another person does X, then that's the same thing. The punishment should be the same, the responses should be the same, the impact should be the same. And then when we consider that God made the world in such a way that the impact and the, uh, uh, the consequences are very, very different, we, we start to feel aggrieved. Now, the illustration I used uh, to illustrate the difference between the sexes is, uh, was this one. I said that a lock that opens to 100, I was speaking about promiscuity in women and promiscuity in men. I said that a lock that opens to 100 keys is pretty much worthless as a, as a lock, and a key that opens 100 locks is uh, considered like a skeleton key or a master key, um, and there's something about it that people tend to admire. Now, when I use this illustration, I was, not, I was not myself admiring that which the Word of God condemns. I was simply pointing out the difference. So some, some sins are uh, sins that you can, if you squint and look at it the right way, can seem admirable. That's why, for example, we, it's possible to have heist movies. You can have a movie where there's a complicated... Uh, robbery in pro progress, or there's a sting or a heist, and you've got a bunch of clever people that pull one over, uh, uh, and, and then they walk away with a million dollars. So that's the, uh, that's the heist movie. Nobody could make a, a movie about a fat and lazy security guard who was asleep at his post all the time and let, um, and let the robbers in. You can't, you can't really make a movie that makes lazy security guards although that's a sin, into anything uh, admirable. Uh, now, bank robberies, casino robberies, big-time heist uh, operations are not admirable. They're a sin. My, my point is that when a man sins against chastity, he's doing something different than when a woman sins against her chastity. Uh, it's, it's not the same thing. It's not interchangeable. It's not a level playing field. Um, 
So a woman who uh, the, a woman's chastity is her glory. Um, a, a man who is chaste is being virtuous and upright, but for for a man to lose something comparable to what a loose woman loses, a woman who sleeps around, a woman who is promiscuous, is not thereby liberated to be just like the men the way some feminists promised. She is. Uh, she finds herself uh, treated with contempt, and it doesn't matter how many slut marches, how many slut walks you organize, you can't turn this self-evidently, uh, self-evidently um, appalling thing into a good thing. Uh, now, uh, men, when they sin against their masculinity, for, for a man to lose something comparable to what a woman loses when she uh, becomes unchaste, uh, he would have to do something like run away in battle. Um, it says in Proverbs that the glory of young men is their strength. Um, for, for a man to, um, to be unmanned is, would have to do with losing his strength, his focus. And, and again, in Proverbs, when a man is unchaste, when, when the son is being exhorted, uh, he's being exhorted not to lose his strength, not to let his streams of water flow in the streets. Don't, uh, don't squander. Don't waste. Don't be dissolute. Now, if he obeys, he's upright. And if a woman obeys God, she's upright. But they're not being upright in the same area. They're not standing in the same spot. They're not doing the same thing. Now, this, um, to, to talk this way, um, to say that a, a, a lock that opens to multiple keys is worthless and a key that opens multiple locks is not worthless in the same way. Uh, that, that key, just so I can keep underlying the, underlining the point, that key may be in the possession of someone who's very worthless indeed, uh, someone who has a key that opens a, uh, um, numerous locks, might be a thief and a robber and a skunk and a very bad person. Uh, we are not admiring his character, and a person who uses his key to open 100 locks to steal the life savings of 100 people is going to be judged by God at the last day. It, it's a sin. Nobody's praising it. It's just not the same thing. Um, a woman who is dissolute is losing something very different than a man is. Now, the reason this is so offensive, I think, is because it contradicts one of the central lies of feminism, which is that men and women are, in fact, interchangeable. And people are discovering, they're, they're starting to find out that, uh, that there, this, is an, this was and is an enormous lie. And like uh, most lies regarding sex down through the centuries, the impact of the lie lands disproportionately on women. Only this time, uh, you know, it used to be that that uh, some smooth-talking Johnny would promise to love the girl forever and a day, and that girl's mother and that girl's aunts and that girl's grandmother had all taught her since she was little, don't you go believing any smooth-tongued Johnnies. You know, don't, don't do that. And so uh, wise girls brought up by wise women were on their guard. They knew how much they had to lose, they uh, were on guard against those who might take that from them. But in, in this era, um, 
the the women were not betrayed by smooth-talking boyfriends. They were betrayed by their mothers and their aunts and their grandmothers and their teachers at school and their university professors and the media. Everybody told them. Everybody said, go ahead, be as loose as the boys. It'll be totally great. And then when exactly the same thing happened, as always happens, and the impact of this lie, the destructive impact of, of this lie, lands disproportionately in a grotesquely disproportionate way on the women, who are they going to get angry with? How, you know, it, it used to be that they could, they could uh, be angry with the, the boyfriend who lied to them, but now you, they have to be basically angry with the world. Or, uh, since, and since that's, too, uh, that's spread over too many uh, uh, square miles, they have to be angry with the person who tells them the truth. Uh, the book I would like to uh, uh, review briefly uh, for uh, this, our book review section of Plodcast, of the Plodcast, uh, episode 58, is the book Knowing Christ. Uh, by Mark Jones. Now, the uh, everything about this book, the the uh, from the cover design all the way through the uh, uh, the formatting of it, the arrangement of the topics, uh, is set up as an echo of J.I. Packer's classic book, Knowing God, which is um, came out in the '70s, I think, and was just a, a a wonderful and a fantastic book. This book, Knowing Christ, does. Uh, pretty much the same thing. It's a packaging of of rich Puritan theology. Uh, Mark Jones, who is a pastor in, I believe it's Langley, B.C. Uh, Mark Jones is a pastor who is steeped in the Puritans. He he has the Puritans at his fingertips, particularly uh, John Owen. And in his um, uh, discussion of knowing Christ, what he does is he takes a very very dense theology, but not arcane theology, not stupid theology, not uh, theologian raising questions that no mortal should ever raise, but rather obvious uh, questions about what the Bible plainly teaches. So uh, the, the death of Jesus uh, for us, the intercession of Christ as his, um, uh, as an extension of his priestly work in heaven for us. Uh, what Jones does is he, is he takes this very um, cheesecake-rich theology and he packages it in a very accessible and understandable way and uh, presents it in a way that is really an uh, uh, um, admirable aid uh, to devotion. It's just really, really, um, just really good. Um, this is one of those books uh, Nancy and I just finished it this morning. Uh, we have a small uh, stack of books, three, three books, New Testament and, and a book we're reading through and a volume of poetry. And this was the uh, devotional book that we read through together just a page at a time. And it was uh, rich enough to have something um, available for, uh, for you on every page. Right near the end, I'll just give you one example of the, the kind of thing that this book contains. Um, uh, right near the end of the book, uh, Jones, who has been talking about the office, the three offices of Christ, uh, 
his uh, Christ as prophet, uh, Christ as priest, Christ as king. So Christ is our prophet, priest, and king. And Jones shows how all three of those offices were blasphemed um, while Christ was hanging on the cross. Those who were taunting him, those who were mocking him, uh, would say, uh, uh, you know, w- w- through through the oh, you're you're a prophet. They they taunted him with the 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 uh, so you're a prophet, eh? Or so you're a king, huh? Um, so the, the, the people who were um, crucifying Jesus were throwing uh, insults at him wrapped up in the names of his glorious offices, prophet, priest, and king. Uh, this is just a fantastic book. I can't recommend it highly enough. I, on Goodreads, uh, I gave it five stars. Uh, it really is, uh, really is worthwhile. Uh, I'd recommend it uh, devotionally or if you have a, a, a group that wants to, to work through something that is, um, you know, theologically rich and devotionally applicable, uh, I recommend it. So, we're still uh, continuing on, uh, manfully soldiering on with uh, podcast episode 58, and we come to our word study, our Hamartiology word study, and we've been uh, so we're we're going through the New Testament, looking at the Greek words for all the all the sins that are named in the New Testament, and we have been spending some weeks on the word for sin or the verb for sinning itself, hamartia or hamartano. Uh, so uh, we're, we've come to the book of Hebrews, and the word hamartia occurs very frequently in the book of Hebrews. It occurs there 25 times. And 10 of these uses are found in chapter 10 alone. So not surprisingly, most of the references have to do with the sacrificial system, which was set up because of sin. The whole sacrificial system uh, revolves around addressing sin, dealing with sin. And, um, and the book of Hebrews, which is talking about that sacrificial system and how it was replaced by Christ, understandably, is addre- using the word sin a lot. So the Son of God, when he came to earth, did so in order to purge our sins. That's 1-3. He was made a merciful and faithful high priest in order to make re- reconciliation for the sins of the people. That's in 2:17. We have a high priest who knows what it is like to be tempted, even though he was tempted without sin. Uh, 4:15. This is not something that a high priest does. It is part of their calling, sacrificing for sin. 5.1, not only for the people, but also for his own sin. That's in 5.3 and 7.27. But Christ, as high priest, has really dealt with sin by his sacrifice of himself. That's in 9.26. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, 9.28, and at his second coming he will appear without sin for final salvation, 9.28. We are told in the book of Hebrews to exhort one another as long as it is called today, that we, that we not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 3.13. We are promised that one of the terms of the new covenant is that God will no longer remember our sins. 8.12. The promise is repeated again in the 10th chapter, uh, 10.17. That's where the Jeremiah's prophecy of the new covenant is quoted in full in, in Hebrews chapter 8, and then selections of it are quoted in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 10. 
So in the Old Covenant, the repeated sacrifices meant that the worshipers were not really being cleansed from sin in any final way. 10.2. In every sacrifice, there's a remembrance that sin is still around. Uh, 10.3. So if you're sacrificing, that's an indication that sin hasn't gone anywhere or hasn't gone anywhere ultimately. It is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. 10.4. God has no pleasure in the sacrifices for sin, had no pleasure in the sacrifices for sin that were found in the Old Testament. 10.6. God did not want such sacrifices for sin. 10.8. The priests of that time offered up repeated sacrifices, which could never take away sin. 10.11. But Christ dealt with sin once for all, and then sat down at God's right hand. 10.12. Whenever real remission occurs, there is not more need for offering. There is no more need for offerings for sin. 10.18. If we return to the old covenant forms after being told of Christ, the once-for-all sacrifice, uh, we are returning to a system that has no efficacy. No sacrifice for sin remains. 10.26. And I'll just say in passing, remember that uh, that passage is not saying that if we sin willfully after we after we've received the knowledge of the truth. No more sacrifice for sin is left, and so you're toast. Uh, rather, he's saying, if you Christians who are tempted to go back to the Judaic system, you're tempted to get on the boat and sail back to Jerusalem, which is about to be destroyed. There's no sacrifice for sin back there, um, but only a fearful expectation that will destroy the enemies of God, which happened in 70 A.D., Moses chose to be with God's people rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a time, 1125. And since we are surrounded by the great witnesses spoken of in chapter 11, we must lay aside every sin that besets us, 12.1. We have not yet resisted against sin to the point of shedding our blood, 12.4. And this is something we should, should be prepared for. The bodies of animals slain in the sacrificial system, whose blood was for sin, uh, 13.11, were burned outside the camp. And Christ himself was slain outside the camp so that we might be allowed into the city. God in the time of the sickness, God in the doctor too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.